Let me help you. No, let Val do it. I can take it. No, let Val do it. Val does it. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowland. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 106 this time around, which is back to Erica's choice. What are we talking about today? I chose The Second Mother, or Que Horas Ela Volta, translated from the Portuguese to When Is She Coming Back, from 2015, written and directed by Ana Muilert, with Regina Casse, Michelle Jolsas, Camila Mardila, Corina Tellis, and Lorenzo Mutarelli. The estranged daughter of a nanny who works for an affluent family comes back into her life to take a university entrance exam. So are you ready to jump into this film that we loved when we first saw it? Absolutely. And the second time, for that matter. We're introduced right away to Val, who we will learn just does not have a swimsuit. She's taking care of young Fabino, who is delightedly splashing in the pool. Now, she's trying to talk with her daughter on the phone, and it's not going well. And she tells Fabino about her daughter, and he asks where his own mother is and when she'll be back. They're giving each other love and being funny and playing. I read a bit about Anna Muilert's process, writing this after she had her first child, and then taking another 20 years to develop it, to get it right, as she says, to find the right story. It's based, in part, on her own experience. All the people around her having nannies take care of their own children, she deciding as a single parent, that she wanted to care for her own child. But really focusing on the central idea that taking care of your own children or other people's children is sacred work, very underrated. Well, knowing that the film dealt with class issues and was from South America, when it starts on this swimming pool, I was immediately put in mind of Lucrecia Martel's La Cienega. That was a film that definitely inspired Anna Moyalert as well. This is obviously a much different film, more a case of contrast than compare with Martel's film. The decay is palpable in La Cienega. But this is much more a sunlit and cheerful scenario, at least on the surface, to start with. Fabino, as he's swimming, like you mentioned, he calls for her attention like a son. And when she gets off the phone, she is doting and affectionate. She truly feels that affection for him. But there's more to it than that. You get that distinct feeling that this phone call has engendered the wave of devotion in her, and that that energy has to go somewhere. It needs an outlet, and so young Fabino obviously reaps the benefit of that, too. There's a great thing that happens in moving from this opening scene to the next that I have to admit that I missed the first time. In the next scene, she's scolding an older boy, also like a mother. Somehow, I initially missed that this is Fabino, now grown, and it's such a subtle unremarkable shift from the first scene to the second that when I caught it, it hit me like a thunderbolt. How perfectly that this conveys how 10 years can be gone in the blink of an eye. 
Once I grasped that, it was really easy to imagine the bond that had developed over a decade of being a nanny to this boy, augmented by that transfer of affection that we got a hint of after that opening phone call. It's definitely not spelled out to us, which I really appreciate. It does allow for a bit of sense of ephemera. Now, Fabino is grown, and Val is clearly doing everything all the time. She's aware, and so are we, that this is not her house. She's on duty at all times. It's not her family, but the lines are really blurred. He functions like a surrogate son for her, or her a surrogate mother for him. He confides in her about a girl. He calls her by her first name. But you see little things like how she kisses him on the forehead, how she chides him but enables him. To see to the well-being of a young charge to do the basic job, those things aren't necessary. So we're already crossing boundaries. And she's really answering all of their needs, including the patriarch kind of by degrees, Dr. Carlos. I really like those fun moments of seeing her still using some of their things when she's alone. But it's very surreptitious and very gentle. It just makes me smile, though. And I know there's a moment that you love here, too, when she takes a moment for herself in the sun. And she deserves that moment because she has a lot of hardships, it seems like. Even with her co-workers, she's always reminded of her station, the situation with her daughter, whom she's been estranged from. And as surrogate mother to this boy, it's clear that she takes care of everyone, even this loose family of domestic workers. And I know this is a really motherly question to ask, who takes care of her? And you're right, there's that touching and telling moment that I really love right away. She's left alone for a brief moment, and she steals just a second to lean against the wall and tilt her head back to let the sun shine on her face, but even that is done while she is on her feet. And even after all of these years, it's still Doña Barbara, yes ma'am, to Barbara, who is the mother, the matriarch. There is some parenting going on here. Barbara and Carlos confront Fabino over a joint that they find, but Val still just waits on the other side of the door, just in case. She's always out of eyesight, even if there's no door, never drawing attention to herself. And I love that one of the original working titles was The Kitchen Door for this. Yeah, the way the action is framed is brilliant. As an example, we're often in the kitchen with Val, anxiously occupying her workspace while the family's life takes place in the next room, but a world away. She has to be ever attentive. She's aware of them always. And that's not a two-way street. We see her perched beside a door, listening, waiting, in case she's called upon. And we see them oblivious to her, except when they need something done that they could easily also do for themselves. I'm thinking of this role that she fills for Fabino and he for her, which is really just giving demonstrable love to each other. She calls Fabino her little boy at one point, which makes me wonder, did you have a second family? Not like this, not in this way. I did have a woman that functioned very much like this for me, but it was actually my maternal grandmother. Both of my parents were working, and so she took care of me all the time. And she's the one that got me started on the cinema kick, because she would take me to the movies all the time. That was one of our most favorite things to do. But it was never a person that wasn't part of our immediate family. I've got a story about my grandmother a little bit later, okay. but I really did and do have a second family. Because my father worked in trucking, and my mother decided to go back to college when I was in elementary school. 
Her college was really far away. Clown college? No. (laughs) (laughs) A nursing school. Now, it was really far away, and the sacrifice that she made for us was to make that trip every day, which was about an hour and a half each way. I don't think I'd do that for you now. I know. Can you imagine? (laughs) On top of her studies, too. And the sacrifice that I then made was to get up well before school started to go across the street to the hunter's house. I slept on their couch and got ready for school every single day for years. And then I came home to them after school until I was really old enough to be a latchkey kid. I considered them to be my second family. They said I was their daughter. They had two sons. This was a really close and integral bond for me. And also, they were totally different than us. They taught me a lot of things. And that never caused the sort of complications that we see in something like this because you weren't actually living there. So it was only beneficial as far as you feel? Absolutely. From my child's perspective, there was no problem. I can't imagine that the burden that that also put on Becky and Mark, the mom and dad, they certainly never let me see anything like that. And I felt like our families as a whole were just very close. We were lucky to be in a neighborhood like that that was really loving and we shared a lot of things. I hope also, I hope this is correct, that there wasn't any sort of issue with other people's idea of parenting or how we were disciplined, respectively. Well, can you imagine having Regina Cassay as your across-the-street neighbor? How wonderful that would be. I know she's mostly known as a comic actress, and you can see that, but she's so funny and warm. It seems like she's everyone's grandmother. I believe even the director said she's basically Brazil's Oprah. (laughs) It really just makes me happy to see the things that make her happy. The way that her exuberance manifests itself in her character, though, I could see how, for her daughter, that it could be a bit overboard. When we first get to meet Val and see her in her room, the implication of her situation is just unmistakable. After a quick establishing shot so that we understand that these are her quarters, the camera moves outside of the room to view her while she is on the phone. And from this vantage point, she's in a metaphorical prison. We are viewing her literally through the bars over the windows. The camera could be anywhere, but Muilert puts it right there. She clearly does not have the same comfort as the rest of the house, down to just having a fan with no reprieve from the mosquitoes. And she gets that important call. This is the big deal. Jessica, her daughter, is coming to Sao Paulo for university. But this major life issue is not so much for Barbara. Val's trying to talk to her to explain it, but really all that matters is her getting back early on Monday. My favorite detail here, what we learn about Barbara most tellingly, she wipes off Val's scent when Val is out of eyesight. It's really tempting to say that Barbara is just awful, rotten to the core. I've struggled with it because I don't want it to seem like it's one of those things where she's obviously powerful, she has some influence Maybe she doesn't have as much time for her family, but I don't want it to seem like I'm trying to come down on the woman who wants to have it all. It's not that at all. Absolutely. It's down to character, and I think mostly she's just a narcissist. Well, the first part of the film, it sets up the rhythms of the household, and it's the kind of place where the whole family is often on their phones at the dinner table, not talking to one another. Barbara, the wife slash mother, She's obviously the engine of the household, maybe not as concerned with everyone else as she could be, a narcissist. She's very selfish, it seems like. And her birthday is coming up. 
Val buys her this gift, which is dismissed. The particulars of this gift are interesting to me. It's a coffee service set in an alternating pattern of black and white squares occupied by similarly colored cups, coordinated. I don't know if it was chosen for this reason or not, but I think it's perfect because it puts me in mind of a chessboard and it's simultaneously a gift and an opening gambit. I think that's a great point and I hadn't thought of that. I think of it as budget for Val modern, something that she would think that Barbara would really like something she would want for herself. It makes me think of, obviously, the black and white, but also a kitchen tiled floor. It's about this point in the film where I finally realized what also hadn't occurred to me on the first viewing, that Val is frequently shot from behind, or she's in the edge of the frame, off to the side, not centered, sometimes not even in focus. And that's credited all to Barbara Alvarez the cinematographer. She was also the cinematographer for Lucretia Martel's The Headless Woman, which I know you really like. And Anna Moylert was talking about one of those inspirations, why she wanted to work with Barbara Alvarez based on one of her previous films. That's El Custodio. And in the film, you hear this minister, which would be a government minister, mentioned many times, but you never see this person. The minister goes inside the house in a certain room, and they close the door in your face. And I think we can really see that inspiration here, that we're put out of the frame anytime any other action is happening. So knowing that, seeing that, it makes perfect sense that Val has to work so hard to insinuate herself into the conversation when it becomes important for her to do so. This opening gambit I talked about, she's looking for an opening to ask this question about getting permission for her daughter to stay for a little while. And there are so many obstacles and distractions that it doesn't go as smoothly as planned. In fact, it takes a couple of tries. Of course, it's no problem because, as Barbara says, you're almost family. Already, multiple instances of Barbara telling us exactly who she is. Throughout the film, she will never miss an opportunity to engage in this kind of cruel specificity. In her defense, it is true. She's not family. She's almost family. It's not a lie. But does it need to be said? Or said that way? The return gambit, that constant positioning of this is who you are. And we learn a little bit more about Val's background in that sequence too. In that very lopsided way of sharing, Val has to rush through this. She had some problems with Jessica's father and Val basically got blamed for those problems. But Val takes this treatment from Barbara, and specifically in this case because she doesn't want to blow this. Her daughter approached her, which is unprecedented in their relationship, I get the feeling. She will do whatever it takes to make this work. It's that detail of the single motherhood and the strife within that that also resonates with me. We talked about grandmothers a moment ago, and my grandmother Evelyn, whom I always just called Evelyn, she was divorced from my mother's father when my mother was still an infant. She went to live with her people, essentially, and they all raised my mother and my aunt because Evelyn went to work as a seamstress and did that for the next several decades. And this was a working single mother in the 1950s. We had a really close relationship when I was a kid, Evelyn and I, and my mother told me many times during that period that Evelyn did things with me that she would never have done with her. I think it was difficult for my mother to watch that, to watch that close relationship. So maybe as much as we refer to Barbara as selfish or a narcissist, 
you maybe can understand that feeling of, why is my child behaving this way with what I consider to be a stranger or the help? I don't think she dwells on it too much or too often, though, from what I see. For example, when Barbara's birthday arrives, we don't see her making a great effort to make this about family. We see Val serving. She's working alone, and it seems like she's covering a lot of ground doing so. And I think it's a great choice to have the camera focus on and follow Val, not the guests. It does a couple of things that I like. It underscores how inconsequential and transitory this event is for the partygoers. They don't even register. And it illustrates how she only truly interacts meaningfully with the kids. And as an added sting, she prepares this tray that she bought as a gift. And Barbara turns around and rushes her right back into the kitchen with it. And we see what she truly thinks of it. It's obvious. It's time for Jessica to arrive. And still, no one is quite in the position that they're supposed to be. Val is waiting for Jessica at the airport. And she's framed in the center And then suddenly, Jessica is behind her, calling her Val. She's also come bearing another gift. And I get the feeling that a lot of people in Val's life could take a lesson in accepting a gift in the spirit that it's offered. I think Val is really trying to provide a welcome to actually do a reception. And Jessica's just there. We also learn she sort of had her own mother back in the town where she's from. That's Sandra the woman responsible for taking care of Jessica. But now Val really is trying to be that mother again. Val is so happy to see her. But you're right. I think it seems clear that Jessica is already looking beyond all of this. You can literally see that in her face, which is a great piece of acting from Camilla Mardella. I wonder, though, if this character would look back at this and regret not being in the moment more at some point down the road when it's too late. We know right away this is going to be a difficult situation. Jessica has some problem with her own father. He's not speaking to her. And we're all in that uncomfortable state. Jessica beforehand has clearly not understood the way Val is living, that she in fact lives with the family, rather than just working there during the day. When they finally get back to the house, tired and angry, respectively, Do you think this is more an issue of status for Jessica? Is it more that she's disappointed to not have found a true home? Are those two things separate? She's also, in her way, I think the way of youth, selfish. She wants to know, where is the place where I'm going to study? This is my chance. This is my time. And she's the only one that can make that space for her. I really love the way Anna Moylert frames this. One of the women thinks she's less than. One of the women thinks she's better than, and the other, that being Jessica, thinks she's no better but no worse. This is the second character, I think, now that we have either stated or implied that we think is a little selfish, a little petulant. I know it keeps coming up. Is it just that in comparison to someone as selfless as Val, everyone seems selfish by comparison? I'm not misreading these other characters to a great degree, right? I'm with you, and I had written this a little bit later in my notes. A question for myself. Do I think that Jessica is kind of pushy only because she's actually just asserting that she has a place at the table? I've got a lot of questions to ask you about this. This is actually one of the most central ideas of the film to me, but we'll explore that more as we go, I think. I'm thinking about that idea that Val states that when they offer something of theirs, they're sure will say no. Is that about age? Culture? Class? Everything is about class. 
especially in Brazil. For instance, this great choice of having Jessica wanting to study architecture. I like this choice as a subtle way to get at revolution. It's not uncommon in Brazil for there to be a specific small room built at the back of the house for domestic workers, the maid's room. It's such a given that it's routinely figured into architectural design. And Jessica would be well aware of this design feature. She would be aware that every one of these houses that she is looking at that surround her comes with a built-in room whose function is to sequester people like her mother. And we say all of this acknowledging that Val's situation as these things go is pretty good. The accounts that I've read lead me to believe that the situation for housekeepers and nannies in Sao Paulo isn't always this benign on average. Because of this confluence of circumstances and personalities, though, it's really interesting the way it manifests itself here. There is an awkward split immediately where Val is treated as an employee and Jessica is treated more like a guest in the house. Well, certainly some members of the family are taking particular notice oh, of Jessica. Say, you notice them circling? Yes. I even used that word, too. Especially Dr. Carlos looking at her, smiling. They're all clearly astounded by her choice of architecture. And I'm so glad you found that detail. That makes so much more interesting sense and provides color and shape to it. They're clearly, though, thinking there's no way she's going to get in. Barbara practically says it out loud. They also kind of brand her right away as a country person, a person from the Northeast, like Val was when she first came to them. But she's not buying into that at the same time. She's essentially evaluating the house, I think. And then they literally send Val away so they can focus on Jessica. My favorite moment here is the two children meeting. Famous Fabino, famous Jessica. Yeah, it's easy to imagine Val talking nonstop to Fabino about Jessica and vice versa for 10 plus years now. And I think you're right about evaluating the house, but she's evaluating them too. She's doing more than that. And during this tour of the house, Jessica lays claim to a guest bedroom. Knowing what she knows, feeling the way she feels about it, she won't participate in being shunted off to a servant's quarters. And this is a point of contention immediately. This is trouble. There was already a mattress purchased so that Jessica would be in the same room with Val, which could serve multiple purposes. And then the detail I love, Fabino comes in late at night and he and Val talk about Jessica. He's fairly young, but he's got her pegged pretty well, I think, don't you? That she thinks pretty highly of herself, though some of that we can see through. He says, too sure of herself. <laughs> Whatever they expected her to be, at the very least, it's not at least sure of herself. I love that Val says, yeah, it's as if she were the president. Val and Fabino definitely feel as much like mother and son as anything else here. Definitely much more than Val and Jessica at this point feel like mother and daughter. I want to talk about Regina Casse a minute again. By the way, she's been working in theater and TV and film for decades. I mentioned that she's sort of the Brazilian Oprah. Anna Moilert says that she thinks she's also kind of a belly dancer. <laughs> yeah, she contributes, <laughs> she contributes to the rhythm because... The director said that she also writes musically. Every 10 minutes, something's going to happen. Well, in this case, what happens in this 10 minutes is a massive disruption. Val is not up. She oversleeps for the first time. And Barbara ends up sort of being forced to serve Jessica breakfast. You can imagine the affront that she takes this to be. I don't know if Barbara has much of a maternal instinct 
to offset the insult she perceives? That side of her is only highlighted once later with mixed results, and it's clear in this instance that this is unacceptable. I like the flip side of this, which is that she's essentially forcing Jessica to be served. It is incredibly uncomfortable. So is this about class conflict or more about conflict between women at this point? I think it's definitely about class conflict because I don't think Barbara thinks of herself as a woman first that same way that other characters might. She seems to be above or apart from sexuality in that way. The question that I wanted to turn around back to you is sort of in line with this. Do you think it's self-awareness or a situational awareness that Jessica lacks or that she knows exactly what she's doing and it's neither? To me, if I had to guess, this would be the first time that she's in this situation at all. So it just seems like not perceptive of artificial boundaries. They haven't been enforced on her her whole life. I would definitely say the same. I would argue situational. She's not taking her mother's needs and fears into account. If she's doing this on purpose, she is acting unilaterally as she sees it on Val's behalf. And I think the one thing that she says that really reinforces this position, my understanding of this, I'm going to study in my room. Whose room? You've been here less than 24 hours. There is an obliviousness, and you referred to it earlier, that comes with trying to enact your own private revolution in this youthful way. I can't blame her. I think it's a noble aim to knock down these class barriers instead of perpetuating it by playing by these established rules, both spoken and unspoken. But of course, it's easy for me and her to say because she and I won't be the one that directly suffers. And speaking of obliviousness... Barbara's not aware that her husband is extremely aware of this young woman. I love this additional conflict. This man who wants more. He starts immediately by sharing his art with Jessica. And I think this art is beautiful, by the way, and it shows up all over the house. He's obviously very talented if he applies himself to anything. I would buy one of these in a heartbeat. But the way it's hung and the way that it recedes into the background and the rooms that you see it in, it's like he's a ghost in his own house and his art is just an unappreciated extension of that. What we're not talking about is his role as a father here. It's more about his role as a man, even less so a husband. I think his primary function here in this whole thing is just to make murky waters murkier. It's no accident that he has been induced to come out of his room in the daylight hours for the first time, for instance. Now, I had decided right away, I did not share this with you, I was going to just completely set aside the idea or the question or the theme that men in this film are not asked the same questions as the women are. And he still has a fascinating part to play. He doesn't have anything to do in his life. In an American film, that might be reserved for the female role. It just gives him no purpose here for his own life. He's not supported by his wife. He has inherited money. He sleeps a lot. And he doesn't paint anymore. He's just this benevolent but distant presence in his son's life. Well, she is inspiring feelings in him that I think have been dormant for a long, long time. And you can see it. She's regarding the paintings. He's regarding her the whole time. He's very unhappy, except, I think, with Fabino, and I think this may be where we differ a little bit. I think he loves and understands his son, because I think they are very alike. I think they are very closely connected. We don't see it a lot, but, for instance, later on in the film, when 
Fabino fails an exam, it's Carlos that gets close to him and offers a consoling presence. You can really feel their connection and the encouragement. It's genuine. But you're right. He sees himself as footing the bill for all of this. And I don't know that there's necessarily resentment. There's a little. You get a little bit of that. But he's reaping no personal reward, that's for sure. Everyone dances and I'm the DJ. It's such a bourgeois attitude. It seems like he's been so removed from his own personal feelings for such a long time that when they come out in regards to Jessica, it's like a volcano, a quiet one, an incredibly uncomfortable and awkward volcano, but just waiting to pour out and be expressed. And that ball is already rolling. Carlos invites Jessica to have lunch with him, and Val is a nervous wreck at the prospect of this, and her friend and co-worker Edna knows how bad this is. This is a potential disaster. And when dessert comes and Jessica asks for something sweet, they cross the Rubicon when Carlos offers her Fabino's ice cream. Later, he takes her around looking at buildings and there is this hug that lasts just a little or maybe a lot too long, depending on how you feel about it. Fortunately for her, he gets a call that Barbara has had an accident and fortunately for everyone else, it's not too serious. It's just going to get more uncomfortable and more untenable on all fronts. Barbara is recuperating. She's at home in a sling, wanting sympathy and love from her husband and son. Meanwhile, Jessica, who has been told that the pool is off limits, basically gets tossed into it by the boys. Another crossing the Rubicon, and I think Barbara does that crossing as well. After a bit... Not drawing attention to it, she has the pool essentially drained. Here's where we differ again. I think she very definitely calls attention to it. I think everyone is acting out in all sorts of directions here. Val warned Jessica not to use that pool, and she transgresses almost immediately. There's already stress in the house without exacerbating it this way. The guest room was a violation to begin with. But this pool, I think, is a much more potent symbol. This is luxury. This is a social signifier. And you're right, the implication is that Jessica made the pool dirty and unusable. Class issues are reaching a boiling point. Barbara says she saw a rat in there, and we know exactly what she is trying to say. Now, speaking of the pool, Anna Moylert was asked, does she have her own version of the swimming pool, the place she can't go, the thing that's forbidden to her? And she said, it's basically machismo, when men won't look her in the eye, which she said happens a lot. So I'm wondering, do you have a symbolic pool? I'm going to answer that in two ways. And the first part really is just the voice of privilege. Not one comes to mind right away. It's the same for me. And also, I just live in this perpetual Groucho Marx state of, I wouldn't want to join a club that would want to have me as a member anyway. Maybe that's a reflexive self-defense thing, so I don't have to feel restricted from doing what I want to do, but it honestly doesn't occur to me very often, if at all. I would have assumed that would be your answer. I don't think you walk around feeling like there are barriers imposed upon you. The last time I can remember that feeling was, you must be this tall to ride this ride, and I swore <laughs> to God I would never have that feeling again. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Brazilian society while I'm thinking about it. Because it's a pretty rigid structure, right? Somewhat much more regulated and regimented than we think of it here. Especially in the cities, these class distinctions are extremely visible. The most commonly referenced hierarchy designates five social classes, A through E, from highest to lowest, and that's mainly sorted 
by a household's gross monthly income. There are similar income equality issues that plague us in the U.S. It's not a 1%, but it's close. The top is 3%. Class B, 23%. Class C, the burgeoning middle class, is the largest at 48%. And then the lower classes, D and E, combine for 27%. And there are other factors in determining your designation, and those are education level, occupation, skin color, geographical region. For example, Val leaves the Northeast to work in the Southeast, where Sao Paulo is. And if you look at a color-coded map of the parts of Brazil with majority white population and then majority multiracial population, it's like someone drew a line right through the middle of the country. Some refer to their system as social apartheid. The wealthy tend to live separate from everyone else, gated communities, that sort of thing. And classes C through E really don't interact with the wealthy at all except in domestic or service capacities. So we come back to this big question. How do you learn these rules about what you can and cannot do? Is there an innate privilege that comes with being born into classes A and B, and an innate deference that comes with being born into classes C through E? These lessons, I think, are taught to everyone a thousand ways, large and small. And everything in this case goes along just fine as long as Val knows her place. The resentment and resistance comes when they feel like she's getting above her station. Which makes me think it's just maddening. What are people like Barbara? What do they feel like they're the guardians of? I think some of that is that it's the encroachment of the middle class that Jessica represents, a leveling of the playing field and a relative, I mean, it's never going to be equal, but a relative loss of power and influence for the upper classes and the comfort that comes with those things. They don't see this shattering of boundaries as equitability. This is an incursion. This is an invasion and they're fighting it on multiple fronts and it could be systemic with things set up to make the rich richer and penalize the poor manufacturing obstacles designed to keep them that way. And it also could be little things like these verbal digs that Barbara is constantly employing to devastating effect. I wonder if it's, if everyone is equal, how will I know who I am better than? Yeah, Brazil, much like us, could do a lot with the lesson of you only look in your neighbor's bowl to make sure they have enough to eat. Well, that world was changing made possible for Jessica to do what she's going to do, try to go to university. Val's friend has found a place for them, and Jessica is finally going to move out. No fanfare from Barbara, but money from Carlos. Unfortunately, though, there's a problem with the place. Maybe there was an issue with a deposit or dibs or a bribe, but it's just fallen through, and they have to return back to the house. Why do you think during this tense exchange that Barbara speaks English this one time in the whole film? Is this another device to further increase the divide? The implication being that Val wouldn't have had access to that kind of education? Absolutely. And Jessica the same way. They talk earlier about the public education system being so terrible. Yes, it's just a symbol of power. Now... We come to the scene I was dreading watching again and dreading talking about. Yeah, I have to take a deep breath even now just to think about it to get ready for this bit of the conversation. If I were to watch it again, I would have to look away. This really is the centerpiece scene. I think it is both the one I look forward to most because of Lorenzo Mutarelli's flawless performance. And it's the one that I dread, just like you, because the feeling it gives me in the pit of my stomach. We're in the kitchen. Carlos is serving Jessica, and he delivers this heartfelt speech about how she changed his life. She, like me, 
doesn't know where to look or what to say. <laughs> and then he proposes marriage. She laughs in that way of extreme emotional discomfort, and he apologizes, but gets down on one knee. It continues. He gets interrupted, though. He says it was just a joke. When this camera starts to slowly push in on the, this breakfast table, this feels like a horror film, almost. The things that he is saying to her, implying that only she can save him from this predicament that he finds himself in, it's so painful because his situation has him grasping for happiness, though he might not even know what that is, but he's so desperate. And he does a great job playing this. He's wavering between being completely emotionally naked and then in the blink of an eye having to play it off like I didn't mean this. But that moment, oh, I'm, my hair's just stood up on my arms <laughs> when I talk about it, when it just completely overtakes him and he falls to his knees on the floor, I, I start to cry. I'm, start, I'm think, thinking about it right now. I'm about to. It's like a dagger in my heart. It is so hard to watch. If I was a writer and I only ever wrote one scene, this scene in my whole career, no matter what else I did, I could be proud of my entire body of work. This is a top 10 all-time scene for me. I find it that powerful. I think about it all the time. I'm plagued by it. Sometimes it feels like. Do you think that this is a watershed moment for her as much as it is for me? Gosh, I don't think so at the end of the day. I'm going to say her youth and the completely different trajectory that she's on, we're going to learn even more about that here in a few moments, means that I don't think it has the same import for her. I think that she's not going to forget it, but I don't think she'll continue to dwell on it. Now, Val and Jessica are forced back into that same small room of Val's together, and things come to a head in terms of accusations and recriminations. I love this background piece of info on the working process here. Anna Moylert had the actresses who played Val and Jessica rehearse for one afternoon by making all of the phone calls during the 10 years they didn't see each other. Really? Was this scripted or were they improvising this stuff? Totally improvised. She gave them a script afterwards, but she generally doesn't like for people to use the same words that she's written. She prefers a collaboration. That feels very Mike Lee-ish. I really like that touch. It seems like it would really draw out the best of a really strong performer anyway. I think the Mike Lee comparison is a great one. She approaches it kind of graphically, more about here's the emotion we're trying to get to. Here's where you're coming from. Here's where you're going. How are you going to do it? Well, this conflict that they have, it really hinges on two main ideas, and it's one that we haven't talked about much yet, and that's the difference between the one who raises a child versus the one who gives birth to them. You talked briefly about Sandra, a friend who raised Jessica using Val's money, and Val says she got the good part. That's so painful. And that happened on a track that ran parallel to Val raising Fabino. So do we by extension, assume that the bond between Sandra and Jessica is similarly loving and strong? I would say yes. And if Val thought about it for another moment, she would also know that neither of those things are the easy part. She didn't have the easy part in raising Fabino, giving and receiving love. That's still never easy. Who knows if he'll think about her in the same way 10 years later. So none of it is ever easy. And I love that we have different mothers here, multiple mothers, even in the same person. 
The second crucial idea in the scene, I think it comes back to class again. And it's that distinction that you pointed out earlier. Jessica doesn't think she's better than everyone. She just doesn't think she's worse. She's not a second-class citizen and won't be treated that way. And in the last two decades in Brazil, there really has been a growing change in these class designations. Jessica is more emblematic of an emerging class that's more upwardly mobile. They have more power as consumers. Val, I think, prior to Jessica's arrival at least, maybe dreamt of that, but could see no clear path to achieve it. The family that she works for certainly don't take those ambitions of hers seriously. And you do well to point out how she's framed. She's constantly constrained by doorways, content to be confined in small spaces, piling up her possessions all around her, literally behind bars in that scene that I mentioned earlier. That is not mobility. I think I've got a good link that I'm going to share in the show post, and it speaks a bit more about this very specific idea of Brazilian citizenship, which is something that the director and writer wanted to speak to. It's not something I can totally wrap my head around. It's complicated, but at least in days past, depending on your social class, you might have no identification, no birth certificate, and then therefore no access to any part of the social safety net. It seems like that there are a lot of these social systems and institutions that might be hard to navigate without someone to guide you through it, without help. And so we have a scene where Carlos surprises Jessica with a trip to FAU, to the architectural school that she's interested in attending. He's still doing these little things for her, though his advances were refused. Do you feel like this is to engender some sense of obligation in her? And if she continues to accept help from him after this point, does he take unrealistic encouragement from it? I think it's on purpose that he brings Fabino along. And I think that gesture, along with giving some money, is more for him to be able to say, I'm still doing dad things. I can at least compartmentalize that, even if just in my own head, that I'm still staying within this boundary. I still think it's kind of 50-50. I think it's definitely some of that, but we also see him basically take to his bed. He's more depressed than ever. So this has deeply affected him. But for now, in her case, I think she'll press on, accepting these things that he gives her at face value, because what else should she or can she do? I don't think in any way that she's intent on taking advantage of his feelings for her. That's not something she wants any part of, clearly. Jessica is a habitual line-stepper, but not in a manipulative or mercenary way like that. In her case, everything she does is motivated by a sense of justice, not in pursuit of personal gain somehow. I'm not sure that I think of her in quite those terms, or it being so strident almost. I think of it just simply as, if someone offers, of course I'll take it, because I'm not assuming that they think I'm going to say no. I think she has just a tiny bit more of a political agenda than that. Okay. And I really see it in terms of things like, She's smart, and she does know how to play some things. For instance, she adheres to the social order when it emphasizes what benefits her larger agenda. I'm thinking specifically of her education and this tiny but still perceptible undercurrent of, you didn't think I could do it, you didn't think I could succeed in the system you built, yet here I am. I do think that's a great point, yeah. But I don't see her doing it the rest of the time. It's, it's minimal. It's very small, but I think a tiny part of that is in there somewhere. Now back to the household, we have reached what I think is our final point of no return between Barbara and Val. Barbara confronts Val with this family heirloom tray that she broke, but it's obviously just an excuse to dig into this wound 
and lay down rules to hem Jessica in, just to put her in her place. In response to this, Jessica has had enough. She tells Val, you should have defended me, and she runs off dramatically in the rain. Now, how true do you really think that is? It is their house, after all. Should she have defended her for doing those things? I do come back to that idea that she is, at the end of the day, an employee. And the point that you made earlier about Jessica's not thinking about the harm that she might be doing for her mother's position. It's not that easy to be fired and try to go find something else at her stage in life. So when do you say, I stop being an employee and we're talking person to person here? I don't know that that's the time or the place. Yeah, it's a tough call. I don't know that she necessarily should. And even if she wanted to, if she could, the important part of all that is she's just not there yet. She, Val, does not feel the power within herself to be able to do that. We're about to have some great moments here. And this next scene, I think, is one of the funniest in terms of Val doing her job and actually being present, but not having other people notice how much disdain she has for them right now. She has clearly had a long night after this big blow up. She's in dark glasses. She can't wait for them to leave. It's so funny. She's basically giving them the finger behind their back and they completely don't notice. I also love coming up here, her popping the bubble wrap to give her anxious fingers <laughs> something to do. I really think that's a great character touch. She is able to sneak in a good luck to Fabino. It's exam day. She had to just shout the good luck to Jessica. And there's a very important development here. She finds a tiny picture of a baby in Jessica's room. Yeah, this is a potential bombshell. This is a huge development. First, though, we have the exam results. And Val is not allowed to take part in that with Fabino. Sadly, he didn't pass by a fairly slim margin. He won't let Barbara comfort him first. He will only take that from Val. But when she gets a call from Jessica that Jessica did pass, that success that she's achieved, Val can't keep it in. Then he goes to his mother, and they undercut Jessica's accomplishment. We mentioned earlier that Barbara doesn't often demonstrate much maternal tenderness, and Fabino really puts a point on it. Val thinks I'm smart, you think I'm dumb. That is huge. And I know some of it can be written off to emotional teenager, just had a huge setback, but that's something that he carries around with him all the time, I think. Meanwhile, you're right, Jessica has passed the exam with flying colors. And we're at this point, I think, that really drives home that disconnect that's left when who you give birth to and who you raise is such a confused and convoluted journey. Val has no one to tell about her maternal pride in her daughter, and Fabino can't truly help her celebrate because he has got his own failure to work through right now. And ultimately, Barbara doesn't return the affection when Fabino finally capitulates and tries to engage that way with her. It is a complicated mess that leaves everyone in this emotional limbo unable to mine these moments of connection that should be in a situation like this. And this other great moment here, Val gets in the pool, even with no swimsuit, and she calls Jessica from it, but not too loudly. You should clarify. You, that sounds a little like you're implying she was she naked. Just got Sorry, no. <laughs> no, she went in her work clothes. There's only about two feet of water in the pool because it's still been drained. So she rolls up her pants and sticks her feet in the water. But it's still a revolutionary act on her part. And she's so delighted with herself and delighted with Jessica. Yeah, Jessica's success is what has really emboldened her 
to do this, I feel like. This scene really hit me a lot harder the second time we watched it. I was way more emotional this time for whatever reason, and I really love that she is celebrating her daughter this way. It's the most fitting tribute that she can come up with. She's so happy and proud, and she's bragging about being in the pool. And the thing that I really took away from that moment this time, I had absolutely zero fear for her now at this point. I felt like in that moment, nothing could hurt her, which was a fantastic thing to feel for her. Meanwhile, though, I don't have the same feeling about Dr. Carlos. He has taken to his bed, like I said. He's depressed. He's fundamentally a weak person. He may be outwardly gentle, but I think it's a gentleness born of never having to struggle against or for anything in his whole life. There's an entitlement that's built into everything that he does that is distasteful to me, to say the least. It's nice to see that he's struggling with that. It's easy to see that it's left him unfulfilled and that he's floundering, so I have some sympathy for that. But a strong man, a strong person, would go about rectifying that some other way, not by subtly and lazily facilitating this 21st century extension of colonialism. It doesn't help that Fabino is going to Australia for six months, and it will be just him and Barbara in the house alone together. I'm sure he cannot be looking forward to that. Jessica's got a new place, and Val comes over. Jessica won't speak to her, except to say how much I suffered because of you. And we realize those 10 years of it being so hard for both of them. And finally, it comes out that picture is of George, her son, whom she left behind. And so now we have to be thinking that this entire time, that Jessica was aware that she's done the same thing that her mother did. And you mentioned earlier that pool scene really hitting you emotionally. It's this and the scene that comes afterwards when Fabino is leaving, where I'm thinking about these different kinds of mothers and their struggles. What will Fabino mean to her or she to him 10 years down the road? This family is breaking up. This one that she had to make for herself, that's Val. And they tell each other that they love each other but not too loud. Again, they have these special signals for each other. So I was really hit here by that passage of time, what came before, what comes after, and what that means to you. I think the thing that really hits me throughout this is that, as usual, Val just wants to make everything better for everyone. That conflict that she has when she comes to eventually ask Jessica about her son it's clear that both of them have suffered because of and for one another. This is not a one-way street. One of those feelings is not mutually exclusive to the other. It's a constant cycle and permutations of a mother's pain and a child's disillusionment. I love, though, that there is no condemnation from Val. She's seen enough in her life to realize that doing that to her daughter isn't going to solve anything. It's not going to help anything. It's not going to make life better for George at all. It's just, when can you bring him? And I know that their example is not as extreme or desperate as in some cases, like leaving one country to go to another. But Val and now Jessica are still part of this story of migration and families separated by economic hardship. And it's something that a lot of the South American audience can relate directly to. Val is much more than just the character that Kase is playing. She's emblematic of a whole subset of Brazilian society that finds themselves in this or similar positions. And definitely, Anamur Alert said this is about all of Latin America. Okay, so we're coming up on the end, but there are a couple of things before we get out of here that I really love that I wanted to highlight. First, early on, 
Val has to take public transportation to go have a night out with her friend. Just another hint of the resources that she does or doesn't have at her disposal. And the thing that I really find notable about the scene, maybe it's just the films that we gravitate to, but just in general, doesn't it seem to you like South American films have more great roles like this for older women than films from the U.S. or even the U.K.? Films that don't make it the central point or a novelty, something like Calendar Girls or Palms. But just women here of a certain age that are just going about their lives. I'm with you, which leads me to a question for you. Do you think this film speaks only to women? Oh, absolutely not. I relate to it a great deal in all sorts of ways, both in the weakness of the male characters and in how much I love and would want to be around women like this, or at least like Val. Val reminds me a lot of both of my grandmothers combined, as a matter of fact. My grandma that I spent so much time with when I was young was very much like this in the sense of the enabling. She was always the one that got me out of trouble whenever I got sent <laughs> to my room or put in a corner. It was always her that came to my rescue. Which leads me to the second thing that I love, coincidentally. I love how strong Val's bond is with Fabino. It's absolutely honest and true, and there's not a moment where either one of them betrays it, ever. Val seems to have an infinite capacity for love, and the film never pits Fabino against Jessica in any real significant way. There's plenty of room for both of them in her heart. I think that's beautiful and one of the greatest things about the film. I think that's why his leaving hits me so much for her. And as we head towards that ending, she's ready, Val is ready to make this action affirmative. I want to quit. I quit. It's about me not about Barbara. Barbara wants to make it about her, make sure that she hasn't done something to Val. Val just says, I need to take care of my daughter. And it's true. Because of this recent development, there's even more at stake now than when we first met her. And I love this scene of her leaving the house for the last time in the car with the window open, with her face turned to take in the sun again, this time comfortable and relaxed, not on her feet for once. What a way to end in triumph, I think. I think in my notes I have it classified as liberated. Val's going to move in with Jessica, announces that she's quit. Maybe she'll take a massage course. There are things that she can do. And it's Jessica's turn now to be proud of her mother. And that final decision is made. Let's go get George. And that smile at the end makes everything so worth it. Now there is some criticism that this is too neatly and quickly tied up that the inclusion of Jessica's son is an unnecessarily melodramatic move, that there's kind of a bit of a telenovela sensibility about it. Given Muellert's background in television, do you feel any of that right here? I totally disagree with that because, like I was saying earlier, it gives us that sense that Jessica is in some way living a lie to a certain extent. Her self-confidence is hindered because she does have this conscience that she is thinking about this person that she left behind and has to also be thinking, in 10 years, what is my son going to be thinking about me? Nor is it insane to think that a young woman would have a child out of wedlock, maybe not planned. It's not crazy. It's something that happens every single day and gives her an opportunity to still show, I have these great capacities. I can still be this great success and do this thing for my child. I think making everyone's choice so fulfilled in a different way. Yeah, it didn't bother me at all. After everything that they've gone through over the last 10 years, 
and the film gives you a very clear sense of what that is, they've earned a stretch where things might be a little easier. There's nothing wrong with that. Originally, Anna Moylert had planned this really with a tragic kind of hopeless ending, that Jessica was a pretty weak character, and then at the very end, because she couldn't be a hairdresser, she was just going to become a nanny as well, and it would stop there. No ladder like La Cienega, no tragic accident. Oh, God. (laughs) I'm glad not. But it's so wonderful to have a triumph of their own. I'm thinking about something that Anna Moylert said, going back to central themes, education being one of those, and ultimately that the film is about acceptance, about expectations and being yourself. It's a very noble quest to be on, to be able to be yourself and be happy within that. So if people can achieve that either on film or in real life, more power to them. And you know who else I say more power to? The fine folks at Oscilloscope. We are really big fans of theirs, and they do this thing called the Oscilloscope Circle of Trust. It's sort of a subscription service, and you can also order catalog titles when you set that up or get them at a discount going forward. You even get a point person to help you get your account set up and guide you through these choices in this process. Yasmina is who helped me and a lot of our friends, and she is completely awesome. So if you want to get some incredible films and support a cool company doing fantastic work, look no further than Oscilloscope. Do you have a recommendation for anything besides Oscilloscope? I sure do. Hold your laughter to the <laughs> end, Coraline. I chose Baby Boom. Can't do it. Lord. From 1987, directed by Charles Shire, written by Nancy Myers and Charles Shire. How many times have you seen Baby Boom in your life? I've got that built into my explanation. Okay. Just give me a moment. Okay. It stars Diane Keaton, Harold Ramis, Sam Wanamaker, James Spader, and Sam Shepard. Linda Ellerby does the narration, and if you were alive in the 80s, this will make perfect sense to you. It's about a career woman who takes over the care of her infant cousin. So here's why I chose it. First, I love it. I've probably seen it 30 times easily. Next... It wrestles with a very important question that can you have it all and acknowledges that that notion is not only ludicrous but soul-crushing. It also points out that men are not asked to answer that question. It's not even on their radar. It's also very much about income and class distinctions as well as gender ones. I personally like that Diane Keaton's character had a rich life before the baby and a rich one after as well. She's provided some choices and allowed to make the ones that mean the most for her and her family as she goes. She ultimately wasn't filling a gigantic void that she didn't know she had. And I do like to think about what comes later, just like with the second mother. Her adopted daughter may also have to wrestle with some questions about where she came from, what she wants, what her mother's work paved the way for, or even if she worked too much. How about you? My recommendation this time is Voodoo Saved from Drowning from 1932, directed by Jean Renoir and starring Michelle Simone, Charles Granville, and Marcel Hania. It's about a Parisian bookseller who saves a tramp from drowning and then has his house turned upside down when that tramp comes to stay for a while. I really wanted to follow that tangent of bourgeois household turned on its ear by an anarchic presence that doesn't find himself obligated to their established rules. This is obviously a much more comedic film than The Second Mother, but the targets that it's aiming at need taking down just as much. 
it's so funny to watch Michelle Simone basically blow this house up by sheer force of will. He's one of those actors that every time I see him, he seems completely different, like a completely different person, yet no less stunningly effective every time. I'd put this and what he does in La Delante up against any two performances that come out of film in the 1930s globally any day of the week. And I really love that this character has no ambition to smash the state. Voodoo as a character is apolitical. He is just an agent of chaos, purely looking out for number one. And when he's done demolishing things, when he's satisfied, he just goes back to his vagrancy. So long, suckers. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Baby Boom and Voodoo Saved from Drowning. And that brings us to the end of episode 106. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would definitely appreciate it if you checked out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you bump that up to the $10 level, you get a fancy glow-in-the-dark pin with our logo on it. There's over 20 hours of material stacked up there for you, just waiting for you to dive in, so please check it out. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. Our podcast network, The 25th Frame, is home to more good shows than you can shake a stick at if that's your idea of a good time. So if you'd like to see that lineup, go to 25thframemedia.com. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Those fine gentlemen at FUDS on Film, Andy Wolverton, Tim Lego, Eric Nelson, Jeff Duncanson, and our friend Laura Cannon over at the Fatal Films Podcast. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure and tag us so we can say thanks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and the 25th Frame. Just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. And if you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Twenty-fifth frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.